Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 282 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing season two of the TV show Channel Zero. Each season of Channel Zero tells a completely different story. And season two, which is called No End House, is about a group of teens who explore a haunted house. And this will involve spoilers for every episode of season two, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Grady Hendricks, making his 12th appearance on the show. He's the author of such novels as Satan Loves You and My Best Friend's Exorcism, and his novel Horror Store, about a haunted Ikea, is being developed for television by Gail Berman, producer of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel. His nonfiction book Paperbacks from Hell, about the horror boom of the 70s and 80s, is out now. So, Grady, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Then next up, we've got Erin Lindsay, making her sixth appearance on the show. She's the author of the Bloodbound series of epic fantasy novels from Ace, as well as the Nicholas Lenoir series of historical paranormal detective novels from Rock, which she writes under the name E.L. Tetensor. She also writes the Villain of the Month feature over at Pornokitch.com, and her historical mystery, The Lady and the Lamp Post, will be published by Minotaur Books in 2018. So, Erin, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me back. And also joining us today is Zach Chapman, who you may remember from our Listener Strike Back panel in episode 200 and our Valerian movie review in episode 266. His short fiction appears in Nature, Starship Sofa, and Writers of the Future, Volume 31, and is forthcoming in Tales to Terrify and Steampunk Universe. He also edited the anthology Time Travel Tales, which includes stories by Catherine Wells, Sean Williams, and Robert Silverberg. So, Zach, welcome to the show. It's so great to be back on the show. I'm always <laughs> so excited and uh, honored to be back. Yep, yep. Good to have you, Zach. Okay, and so this show, Channel Zero is based on internet creepypastas. And I confess I was not really too familiar with creepypastas until I sort of heard about them through this show. So I'm curious if this is a big thing that I just missed. Do you guys know about creepypastas? How about Grady? Uh, are you familiar with this creepypasta thing? Yeah, man. Creepypasta has been around since like uh, the early 2000s. And I've been convinced for, for many years that it's sort of uh, where a lot of the most original horror stuff is coming from. Right. So these are sort of, they're like urban legends, basically, that people write online. And yeah, I mean, they're, that's exactly what they are. They're, they're urban legends. They're made up little stories. And it's getting more and more self-conscious now, um, where people are actually putting up their horror novels when sort of skinning them in uh this just happened. And here's, oh, and this has happened today. And this is what happened the next day. And this is what happened the next day. But, you know, up until a few years ago, they were kind of unsophisticated and sort of charming for all that and, and really kind of uh, unnerving a lot of them. What do you mean unsophisticated? Unsophisticated in the sense that people were doing it for fun um, and people were doing it because it was something that was bugging them or eating at them that they wanted to get out there. Um, in the last few years, you've seen stuff like screenwriters trying to get noticed by putting up like, you know, like by pretending there, there's the plot of their screenplays happening. It's like diary form. And, oh, what do you think will be waiting in my bathroom tonight when I look in there? Oh my God, you won't believe it. It was a giant caterpillar. Hmm. Um, and, and so people are trying to get it for their big break. They're trying to use it to promote their novels. They're, um, they're, you know, certainly channel zeros giving people this hope that like they'll get picked up and be an episode on on channel zero you know what i mean it's it's getting a little more synthetic and getting a lot more self-consciously artistic rather than i think before 
there was a real naive quality to it. It often wasn't the best writers. Um, and often some of them were so absolutely bad. They were almost sort of like Ed Woodsian. Um, and some of them were really unnerving because you didn't know how unbalanced the person writing it was. <laughs> So, so you were into creepy pastas before it was cool. Is basically what you're telling us. <laughs> mm, I was into creepy pasta before it was. Yeah, I guess so. Sure. I mean, I was reading them on Reddit. You know, their no sleep board, where which was home for a lot of them uh, years ago. Mm. Well, how about Aaron? What are you into this creepy pasta thing? I have never heard that term before. Um, I'm fascinated by it. Sounds like kind of like fan fiction. Um, I, I would really like to know why it's about pasta. <laughs> Yeah, does the anyone... etymology of cre- creepy pasta is intriguing. So it's it's copy paste creepy pasta. It's like a scary story that's been copied and pasted and reworked from a million different authors. Oh, is it like it's is it a wiki thing? Like, the, do do multiple people contribute to to a thread? Yeah, sometimes. I mean, like, um, often people, it depends on what forum you're on. Like in the Usenet groups, when it started out in the early 2000s, I think people would jump in more often uh, in each other's stories and flesh them out and sort of, you know, add to each other's stories like Exquisite Corpse. But um, I think uh, now people really do, especially on places like the No Sleep Sub on Reddit, people really respect the original author and will often uh, private message to ask if they continue, can continue a story if it seems to have dropped off. Well, and I guess that's the thing that a lot of these things are anonymous, right? That nobody actually knows who wrote them. Yeah. Like one of my, my absolute favorite creepypastas by a person who is only known as Nine Mother, Nine Horse, Nine Eyes, Nine. Um, and uh, it's really brilliant stuff, but no one knows who it is. Uh, what's it? What's the title? Well, the user's name is Nine Mother Nine Horse. No, nine but what's the nine. title of the creepy? Puzzle? Oh, there really isn't a title. Um, it, it's just these snippets this dude puts up, and um, and they're really. I mean, some of the stuff is really fantastic, even on a, like a purely literary level. It's really, really good. Huh. And so, and, so- and they make no sense. I mean, it's um, I, 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 you know. It really makes no sense. Some of it feels like um, almost like these weird bent fairy tales or like nursery tales for children. But there's a parallel track that's really steeped in modern day uh, conspiracy theories all about like chemtrails and Black Lives Matter and false flag operations. And and then there'll occasionally be these weird interjections of just sort of matter of fact things like, you know, oh, and over in England, they're, they've started crucifying people again. I mean, it's really like broadcasts from another dimension. I, I love the stuff. And he seems to have stopped doing it. It was like about a year. Uh, and and so is that we don't know. <laughs> and so, Zach, it sounds like you've uh, you've perused some of these creepy pastas. Uh, yeah, uh, I checked out the creepy pasta for this series, and was like, "Wow, people should just go buy a curated anthology like Years Best because it was like some of the worst writing that I've ever read." I'm, I'm sure most of well, what what had been written was written by someone who doesn't read a lot of horror or probably anything. And then we're just like, <laughs> I want to write a creepy story. And uh, yeah, it was not very well written. And it made me think that 
uh, I wouldn't want to read any creepypasta after that. <laughs> and I know that uh, Grady's pretty good at uh, making certain things seem appetizing when uh, maybe at least they might not be for me. So, Not yeah. your kind of pasta. <laughs> yeah, not my kind of pasta. Yeah, just the just the rendering of it all was not very good. Um, and it had a similar... Did, did everyone else read that or did anyone yeah. else read the... Yeah, yeah, I, yeah, and I gotta say, No End House is a really dire piece of creepy pasta. Like when you read it, there's a core concept there that's kind of interesting. But man, I I wouldn't have read it and said this would be great for a series of television shows. Yeah, I, I read it after watching the show, and I was definitely underwhelmed by it as well. So yeah, yeah, I, I tend to agree with you. But you know, I gotta say though, you know, and and I'm not defending it because some of this stuff is terrible. <laughs> um, but you know. St- literary style has never been as important in horror fiction. I mean, if it was, Lovecraft wouldn't be so famous. You know, often with horror, it's the ideas beneath it that really resonate for people and give something longevity and sort of turn these stories into little mind worms that burrow down into your brain. Right. I mean, Horace Walpole was not anyone's idea of a great literary stylist. Right, but it was even less the literary lack of literary style and just the repetitiveness of it. Oh, yeah. Was, oh, yeah. So- it's the same oh, yeah. thing over and over and again. Like this room was hell. This room was hell. <laughs> and then this one had my mom in it, and she came over and she was talking to me. And then blood started coming out of her eyes, and I ran. And it was room number five, and I went in, and my friend was there. But then he started on me, and then blood started coming out of his eyes. It was yes, it's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So so maybe let's let's um, move on from the the subject of creepy pasta and talk about this TV show. I do want to mention that there is season one, um, which is called Candle Cove. And I watched it and I, I found it very likable. I watched the whole thing, but I didn't think it was worth doing a panel on. There just wasn't enough there that I thought was really that interesting to talk about. It really um, came across to me as sort of like a low-budget Stephen King's It um, slight variation. Um, and so I, I was kind of going into this with, uh, with you know, ma- uh, medium expectations um, but I really, really liked um, No End House, the the TV series. I, I really, I really, something about it just really caught my imagination. And I haven't talked to any of you guys about it, so I don't know. Maybe you all hated it. I don't know. But uh, how about Aaron? Um, what were your initial impressions of episode one of this show? Yeah, I mean, I liked it. I, I liked the concept from from the get go. If you know, for no other reason than I, I like sort of bite-sized series that come in things like six episodes. It's a relatively low commitment. You can have a very fairly focused story arc. And so there's probably less chance that you go wandering off into little tributaries that don't prove very rewarding for the viewer. Um, so I was, I was really into the concept and I liked it. I thought it, I thought it got off to a strong start. It immediately made me think like by the sort of middle of the first episode, um, I thought this is kind of my kind of horror. Um, and I, I talked about that a little bit, I think, in the last panel that we did together um, on on the kids versus monsters trope when we were talking about it. Um, and, you know, that they're the type of horror that, that I really enjoy is much more that sort of slow burn, implied more than seen messing with your head kind of horror as opposed to, uh, you know, a lot of loud noises and, and monsters leaping out of 
uh, from around corners. Although, you know, some of that happens in the early parts of that first episode, the, the sort of overall conceit doesn't really rely on that shock type of horror. Um, it's, it's much creepier and sort of a slow burn than that. And I really liked that. It sort of struck me as sleep no more meets flatliners, Hmm. at least in that early part. I don't know if the sleep no more reference, I don't know how widely that carries, but, um, well, yeah, why don't you explain that for, I mean, I, obviously I know what it is, but I just made it for other people. (laughs) I think anyone who lives or has been to New York, lives in or has been to New York recently, probably knows Sleep No More. But um, it's it's a piece of performance art that is very loosely based on on Macbeth, um, and they've renovated what they claim is an old hotel, although I'm not sure that's true. But it's basically done in a sort of a, a Victorian style, and there's a bunch of different rooms in the house. Um, and it's got this very creepy vibe. Uh, it's, it's really, really beautifully done. And when you go in, you have to put on a mask and you're not allowed to talk. Um, and your group can quickly become separated. Uh, they often do that to you on purpose. Um, and, and each room sort of has its own standalone theme, which sometimes takes quite a while to understand. Sometimes there are actors in the room performing a piece that's just a snippet that you may or may not really understand. Sometimes the room is just objects and, and generally really creepy and really beautiful um, with, with soundtracks playing and things like that. And you're free to sort of touch anything you want to touch or move around. Or, or if you're a jackass like me, you just go into the candy store and load up your pockets, <laughs> um, you know, you can, you know, rifle through drawers or whatever. So this house kind of reminded me of that sleep no more vibe where you go from one room to the other and your first reaction is, okay, what am I looking at? And you have to try to figure out what you're looking at. And in some cases, the rooms in sleep no more are, are super, super creepy. And then the, you know, the flatliners reference. Um, I don't know whether that sort of started to hit me in the first episode or the second episode, but that's obviously, I was going to say an eighties yeah. classic, but I guess it's early actually, wait, 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 let's, let's hold off on the explaining the flatliners um, reference for the, for the moment. Um, okay. I do want to pick up though, Aaron, what you were saying about the anthology um, format. Cause I, I want to say a little bit more about that because I love anthology um, shows, you know, like uh, twilight zone and outer limits and uh, tales from the crypt and stuff like that, because I like short stories. I like things that are compact and where really dramatic things can happen to the characters. They could die or like whatever, cause they're not coming back next episode anyway. And so this is not exactly an anthology show like that, because as you said, it's six episodes, but it's kind of an extended anthology thing, sort of like, um, you know, American horror story or something like that. Uh, and so that really appeals to me because every episode, something, dramatic happens and characters suffer dramatic fates and things. It's not like a continuing series where they are, you know, it's, it's just, you know, episode after episode where not, where nothing that dramatic is happening. Um, but yeah, let's, um, let's talk about, so you mentioned this house. Let's talk about, um, about Zach. Why don't you tell us about the characters? Um, so we, we start out and we get introduced to these two characters, Margot and Jules, right? So what were your initial impressions of those characters? Well, the characters, uh, Margot, I think is fine because she's dealing with this tragedy of her father, uh, overdosing and dying, uh, from what we understand, dying a pretty horrible death. Uh, he overdosed on medication that he was allergic to. And you see images of it 
uh, right off the bat that are kind of um, like over the shoulder. They don't really show a whole lot, but it's just enough to um, get the audience's interest. And then also it's like, okay, well, Margot's like really um, dealing with some shit in her past. Um, Her best friend that's really it. Uh, I, what's her name? Julie? Jules. 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 Yeah, I actually have a little sh- cheat sheet because to me, and this is on these characters, I feel like they're pretty thin. Um, and I have trouble remembering any of their names because of, um, I think it's a mix between uh, their character development, which is fairly non-existent for anyone other than Margot. Um, and there are reasons and we'll get to that eventually why some of these characters have little, uh, character development, at least until later. Um, but then, uh, the way the two main characters talk with each other, it's kind of like this mumblecore, uh, at least in the first episode, where they're just kind of mumbling at each other and texting on their phones and then like laughing and kind of like shoving each other around felt, I I just really didn't like their acting style. I I think overall, all of the actors are really bad except for (laughs) the father. Who's the Zodiac killer from, uh, um, that 2006 Zodiac movie and he's really great he's uh, he's kind of like the best um acting choice i thought but uh yeah that's okay well i think it's important to mention that jules uh has been avoiding Margot ever since her dad died and um because she couldn't deal with the emotional burden of that right i actually kind of thought i i kind of liked all the actors but I'm, i'm not too picky when it comes to acting generally um, and we, let's talk about the dad in a second. But so, so we've got Marco and Jules and they've got all their stuff they're dealing with. And then Jules wants to get, um, Margo out of the house. So they go to a bar to meet up with some friends. And so they meet up with this guy, JD, and then they bump into this guy, Seth. So how about Grady? What were your impressions of JD and Seth? Yeah. Well, can I just say something general about the, the show first, which is that I have seen the first season and it's really, really rare that I have disliked the first season of something so much and then absolutely loved the second season of it this much. Um, I thought this show is not perfect, but I think it has a lot going for it. Um, and I thought it was really interesting. So you've got JD, who's this childhood friend of these guys of, of Jules and Margot. Um, and he has a crush on Jules now that he's all, you know, gone through puberty and everything. <laughs> they grew up together and no one really takes his boner seriously. Um, and so he's frustrated. Um, and then you had, I think it's Seth, right? Who's the, the hunky, yeah. supposedly hunky guy with the weird pointy face. The 35 um, year old man with. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but, uh, and he's sort of, you know, the dreamy dude who, um, you know, he's understanding and he listens and he's, he's concerned and he's a gentleman and he's chivalrous and he's all those things that, um, you know, uh, are supposedly ideal. Um, I don't ever see his abs, but I assume they're six pack. Um, <laughs> so, and, and, and so they meet these two dudes and I mean, 
I don't know. Can we just jump right in with spoilers? Well, let's 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 do it chronologically, right? But so they okay. so they hear well, they about this these guys, and they hear about this haunted house that's like it appears randomly every year or so, and it's got six rooms in it, and each room supposedly scarier than the one before. And I think it's no one ever comes back from the sixth room, or the people who come back from the sixth rooms are sort of like the sixth room are sort of irrevocably changed. Um, well, and wait, I can't well, remember. Well, do they say they they never come back from the six room? Yeah, JD says that, but it's kind of in a joking way, and we're not sure whether he's serious or not. Yeah, yeah, and, that's what I was going to say. Like, an important thing to point out is that 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 they that they take this for a thing like Sleep No More. They take this for a performance art piece, something yeah. where somebody's done this to make money. They're not taking it terribly seriously at this point. Yeah, and um, and most people bail before they hit the six room. So then they go and find the house uh, and go into it. Um, and yeah, and, and like uh, Aaron's saying, it has a sort of art installation. Um, it's a hipster haunted house. Yeah, well, it has a little like, what would, I don't know what you call it—a little plaque or something saying that it's an uh, an art piece. Yeah. Um, and one thing that I just want to say really quickly is one thing that's really, really I think interesting about Creepy Pasta, and that this show really does well, is that. N- Obsessive behavior is kind of like the theme of creepypasta without ever being the theme. Um, one of the early ones, Ted the Caver, is about a dude who goes into a series of caves that get more and more difficult and, and kind of up, upsetting. And then he keeps going and going and going because he's got to find out what's down there. And he keeps returning to them, not so much in a curious way, but almost like a compulsive way. And and that's sort of the same thing as um, in Candle Cove, the first season of Channel Zero, where this one guy is obsessed with this childhood TV show and just can't let it go. And there's a few other obsessives like him. And it's like with No End House, this, this, these guys subject themselves to something that they don't have to do um and they keep sort of and they and jd's um he's he's not curious about the house he's obsessed with it i mean his desire to go through it is almost compulsive and i find that really interesting that that's where creepypasta goes to this sort of compulsive behavior where people aren't in control of the, what they're doing anyways actually, actually let me say grady um just i don't want to get say too much about candle cove but i just saw did you know that it, it was based on a creepypasta that's based on an onion article <laughs> yes, so I did. I did remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. And it actually has some of the best installments. Did you watch any of the YouTube videos that are just? Well, well, let me let me just say. So the the Onion article was something like thirty five year old man still vaguely haunted by, and it was some specific childhood TV show mm-hmm. I wasn't um, familiar with, but and that inspired the the creepy pasta. I thought yeah. that was funny. Yeah. But Anyways, okay. So they go to. Oh yeah. Sorry. Before you move on from that, because. Um, I wanted to say a word about character motivations because I think it's interesting. Um, you, you described JD's desire to continue through the house as one of compulsion. And it's funny because I read it a little bit differently. But one of the things that I, sh- I think the show did well is that they had each character sort of have their own reasons for continuing through the rooms. Um, and they, they react differently to them and they, they take, uh, they take it, they take it differently, I guess. Um, you know, you have, JD, who's got the, the very sort of, this is a really cool art installation. Like at one point, what's the word he uses? Oh, he's like, it's so, it's so great and confrontational. Like he's using this <laughs> yeah. sort of yeah. fairly pretentious language to describe what he presumes is an art installation. And so for him, I took it as being a sort of an intellectual kind of showing off how much he appreciated this edgy art 
sort of approach. Um, and we lose. Yeah, he, he's a haunted house hipster, like like Randy yeah, exactly. was saying. Yeah, he's and he doesn't like we lose him fairly early in the house. So we're not really sure how he experiences the later rooms, but certainly that's the impression in the early rooms. Margot, right from that second room, um, we're, we're told that she gets something whispered in her ear. So the lights go out. This was, this was, I must say the most sleep, no more part of the whole thing. They go into this room, which almost looks like an, a drained out swimming pool. Um, it's just this big barren room. The lights go out. And when they come back on, there is a creepy guy in a mask standing there. Um, and they assume he's an actor and he kind of shuffles menacingly around them and sort of stares intimidatingly at each of them. And they sort of have varying reactions of either actually being intimidated or kind of smirking at him and not taking him terribly seriously. And then he leans in and he whispers something in Margot's ear and she she kind of stiffens like whatever he said means something to her. And then the lights go off again and he's gone, except there's a big trail of blood and the, a lot of people decide to bail at this point. But of course, our four main characters are there. And, and Jules says, well, what did he say to you? And she said, she says that he said something to the effect of welcome back Martian or whatever. Which Marcia. No, it's Martian. I think it's Martian. And it's, it's her dad's cutesy, oh. her, her dad, her dead dad's cutesy little nickname for her. So from that point on, I sort of surmised that Margot's going forward because this incredibly creepy thing has just happened. And she wants to know, God damn it, how this guy knows the, the, the dad's nickname for her. Jules is going because Margot's going and she doesn't want to leave her. JD's going because he wants to, you know, he, he still thinks this is cool and just an art installation. And we don't really know what's going up with what's going on with Seth. And I, I thought that was good that they sort of all had their their different, very different approaches to the thing. Well, yeah, know, let's mention there's another guy who's kind of like tagging along with him at this point, who's Dylan, who uh, is very muscular and seems like he's on a mission. And he um, wears his backpack with both straps on, so you know he's serious. <laughs> and also, and, let's not and he forget knows a lot the, about the house. And let's not forget the poor dude who like gets dragged out in the pool of blood. Um, you know, we assume that's someone no one will ever see again. Yep. Uh, see, Zach. So, so uh, you, I gather you weren't too crazy about these characters. What did you think about this haunted house? Uh, well, I like the idea of the haunted house, um, especially. Like the upgraded version from the creepy pasta, uh, there were some pretty cool visuals, and uh, yeah, like the when when he says, "Oh, I think they they three D printed my face or something like that," or that's kind of like they're trying to get behind, like, how is this actually happening? Like, like what's going on here? Uh, like at first they're kind of skeptical of, yeah, could this be supernatural? And then as they progress further and further into the rooms, it's very clear that there is some kind of supernatural phenomena happening when uh, Margot starts seeing her, like these visions of her dead father. And I mean, that, that was kind of cool. Uh, I, I like the set design and the, the production of all that. Okay, but yeah, so like you're saying, so the house gets very overtly supernatural where it's drawing 
stuff from Margot's dreams, childhood nightmares, and all the stuff with her dad. And so we, 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 we're getting this feeling this, you know, it's definitely supernatural stuff going on here. And, you know, we, uh, she goes through five rooms and supposedly there are six rooms in this house. But so she comes out after five rooms, she sort of comes out the back of the house and meets up with Jules. Well, she bails. Mm, no. Yeah. Doesn't she? I thought she no. bailed after room five. No, no, no. Cause she's in room like spoiler warning. She's in room six, right? Well, she, she yeah, but I thought the, she, she, she never goes, goes through the exit door. Okay. Well, she, she goes for what she thinks. So at the end of room five, the thing appears to be over. Right. So, so she's not necessarily pulling the chute. It's just, she seems to have arrived at the end. Right. Oh, because it deposits her out back. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I I thought she tried to leave, and then the the house just played tricks on her, and then made her go further into the house. No, you guys. <laughs> no, no. She so, so so she goes through the door into the next room, which is granted it's the only door uh, that's apparent. Well, to that's her. the thing. All the other rooms have an exit door and a door that appears to take you to the next room, and this is the only room, room five, that only has one door out. Right, but it doesn't. All the other doors say say they either say exit or like they say exit if it's the exit door. And so exactly, anyway, we've seen the guys. We've seen the whole series. We know what wasn't the exit door because she like goes out of the house. <laughs> I mean, it seems like maybe it was the exit door because she's out of the house. But then when she goes back to her house, the house her house number has mysteriously changed to six, like room right. six, and her deceased father is there as if nothing ever, as if he never died. And so we know, like, wait, she's still, this is room six. This whole neighborhood is room six. She's still in the house. And that's, bum, 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 the end of episode one. I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, no, and one thing I think is interesting, though, is that he's not there as if he had ever died. And I thought that was a really smart thing the show did. He acknowledges that he's probably dead. He's like, I don't remember what happened. I know I took those pills. I just don't know where I've been, but I'm back now. Um, it's a really interesting thing where he doesn't like pretend that nothing happened. He, he acknowledges that this is weird. Um, but like, what's the downside? Dad's alive again. Well, right. Let's talk about this actor because, um, Zach was saying that this guy's a terrific actor and we've talked, we've seen him. Yeah. We've seen him before. He was in, um, one of those movies we talked about for recent horror movies, the, um, the the invitation. invitation. Yeah. The invitation. Yeah. He was a prison guard and and, uh, face off. Uh, he's been around forever, right? But he he does he plays sort of creepy. He, he play this. He's like perfect for this role because he plays creepy very well, and he plays the sort of likable likable well. dad very well. Yeah. And this is kind of a, a melding of those two. Well, I think wasn't his first big role playing Fa- Francis McDormand's husband in, um, Fargo. in Fargo? Oh, interesting. Yeah. Huh? Where he was basically an on state, an on screen prop. Like he didn't have a lot to do, but you were just like, oh, this is just a nice, solid guy. <laughs> um, right. Okay. So, so, so now Margot's back with her dad, except he's all weird. And, but she has conflicted feelings about this because she uh, misses her dad and wants to find out why he left her and stuff like that. And, uh, and this is one of the things that I, that I think the show did really well. Um, and and I, I have sort of a mixed feelings about the characterization overall. But one of the things I think the show did really well is they established very early on 
that our two core characters being Margot and Jules are both in a very important sense driven by guilt. Margot feels like um, she, she was out late the night that her dad um, accidentally, uh, as we're told at the time, took these pills, these prescription pills that he was allergic to. Um, she was supposed to be home by 10. She wasn't home by 10. By the time she got home, he was dead. And she's been torturing herself with this idea that if she'd just come home when she said she would, that she might have been able to save him. And then, Dave, as you mentioned before, Jules completely sort of abandoned her the summer after that happened. She felt like she was being dragged down by Jewel, or by Margot's grief. And so she abandoned her friend. And we see very, very early in episode one that she's really tortured by that choice. And she feels guilty about it, which is part of what... So, so that guilt is what drives both of them to proceed through the house. Um, and it's kind of what drives both of them for the remainder of, of the show. Um, and I think they did a really, a really good job of that because you do kind of need a reason. And sometimes in these, you know, from, from a writer's perspective, it's sometimes hard to, to give characters a plausible reason to persevere in these types of circumstances. Like, why doesn't she just, I mean, your dead dad just shows up. This, this is not okay. But they give her a plausible reason other than just longing to see her dead dad. Why she why she perseveres through this and feels a sense of obligation to this creature that she doesn't really know what it is, but it's more or less her dad. So I thought they did a good job of that. Right. And so so Marco and Jules are hanging with Margot's dad. And uh, how about Grady? Tell us about what J.D. gets up to. He goes back to his house. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much detail you want to go into, but yeah, J.D. goes back to his house. I mean, everyone goes home because they think they're out of the house, when in fact they've just gone deeper into the house. Uh, he goes home and he finds sort of a duplicate version of himself that's uh, older and sexy and, you know, has a has a nubile young woman and is presumably not a virgin anymore and drinks liquor in the middle of the day. Um, who then, uh, turns out to be, you know, you get the idea that the people inside room six that people are seeing are their projections built out of their memories and, and their versions of other people. Like it's not really, uh, Margot's dad. It's her memory of her dad who's taken on some kind of sentience. This isn't really another JD or his doppelganger. This is, something the house has made that's sentient based on JD's idealized version of himself. Um, and, and this version of himself murders JD really quickly because it wants to get out of the house. Um, and it wants to sort of take his place in the real world. If he ever gets beyond room six and back to the real world. Right. And I, I think it's a little, it feels a little slower than that. Like I feel like that character is unsure of himself. I like, yeah. And Oh, he's very unsure of, these... of himself, but he kills him pretty quickly. I mean, literally they sit down to talk and he's murdered him like five minutes later. Yeah. It makes me wonder like what kind of person JD was to begin with and that he would have created a guy that would murder him. And then that this is a part where I started like really, thinking about and you know this is the interesting bits of the show to me is how these constructs start growing and becoming their own thing even though they, they are constructs of pe people's memories but then they have motives that may not be 
the same motive as the house, as the pocket universe slash organism that we're starting to understand is probably what this house is. Well, and, and not just that, but there's also with JD's double, you get what I think is sort of the perviest moment on the show. And one of the most disconcerting <laughs> moments is JD's double has this sort of nubile, silent sex kitten that squats next to him on the couch and lounges around and, and basically looks like she's up for anything. Um, and you get the impression she's sort of his submissive sex toy. And at a certain point, the, the real JD says, you know, well, like, I created her. And the doppelganger JD said, like, no, she's, she's a real person who stumbled in here. And you, you realize that when people come into the house, some of them like it. That's where they want to be. That this person has willingly embraced the house and, and, and allowed their memories to be stolen, has decided not to fight. And is living in this more fulfilled role as a completely submissive, agency-less person, which to me is really harrowing that not that someone would do that to you, but that you would want that done to yourself. Uh, and I think it's a moment they really brush past in the show, but it's like really chilling. Here's someone who wanted to be a person who's not a person with nothing on the inside. But who says she did? I mean, I had a totally different reaction to that, I have to say. I, I thought she was just like, um, I mean, and, and we see this this repeated in, in later episodes. I think she was a victim. I think she, this was just all that was left of her after the house had taken everything that it could. I mean, I don't, I don't, it's possible that she allowed herself to be put in that situation, but it's equally possible that that is what uh, Jules and Margot and all of our heroes will become by the end of the show if the house has its way, which is this person completely without consciousness or choice. They're just a husk and they just. But then how does Seth exist? Well, 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 okay, wait, let's, let's, let's slow it all, let's slow down here a little bit. Yeah. Um, So. But wait, before we move on to, from that, I just wanted to go back to something that Zach said, because I, I agree, like, the, the most one of the most interesting parts of the show is, I mean, I think to the extent that we get characterization in a character like JD, who doesn't get tons of screen time, especially in these early bits, what, so, so when the, when the characters go in the house in the first episode, and you see flashbacks of what they saw in the house in the second episode, that's quite revealing about who they are because what each one of them sees once they become separated is their own individual horror, right? So Margot sees her dad, um, but, but Jules sees something else, which I'd like to talk about at the appropriate time. And then, um, and then JD, we, we don't see what he sees, but he tells Seth later that what he saw was the creepy guy in the mask again, but then the creepy guy in the mask took off the mask and it was JD underneath except it was a mask of JD. And we don't really know what to make of that. But then you fast forward to this scene where he's sitting across from his doppelganger. And as Zach was saying, like the doppelganger grows out of the memories or, or the thoughts of the human who walked into the house, but it quickly develops its own agency, which is not only separate from the person that it grew out of, but separate from the will of the house. And so you see all of these insecurities immediately, like JD has basically created this, this idealized version of himself. So the, the doppelganger quickly understands that what he is, is what JD is the version of JD that JD wishes he were in real life. And so he wants to take that over. 
and and that insecurity, but that insecurity that caused JD to wish there was another version of himself that is copied over. So just as the dad's allergies are copied over into the doppelganger, that insecurity is copied over into the doppelganger and that becomes important later. And I thought that was a really nice nuance. Right. And I want to make a point about these constructs because I don't know if you, any of you guys have seen Solaris, but this is sure. very, very reminiscent of Solaris. And I've always really loved the idea of you meet someone who's constructed from your memories of them. And so they can't know anything that you didn't know about them. And I just think it's interesting that that's a science fiction story and this is a horror story, but they're dealing with this very, very similar idea. And like um, Aaron was saying, I think that this is not like schlocky horror or campy horror. It's not like really gory. It's much more like philosophical, existential, um, like slightly science fictional horror. And I really like that. It's kind of like um, in our um, recent horror movies panel, we were talking about this movie, Don't Blink. And to me, this is more like in the Don't Blink school of horror than the um, Baskin school of horror, right? That this is, it it really does make you think. There's a comic book with a similar setting uh, as far as there being like a construct or what we currently understand to be like a constructed uh, city or universe. It's called Black Hammer and it's really good. Um, I think there's only two seri- uh, two volumes out, but it's, it's well worth a read, especially if you like... Um, like throwbacks to DC comics and also some horror EC stuff. Um, it's, it has a very similar concept to this. Uh, so I'd encourage people to check that out. Okay, cool. Yeah, no, definitely. Cause I, like I said, I really like this a lot. So I'm, I would definitely be interested in seeing more, uh, kind of similar in a similar vein and also like maybe just like fan fiction about this. I don't know. I, I thought there was a lot more that could be done with the concept, but um, so, Zach, I, I feel like we need to explain how people lose their memories in this world. So could you talk about that a little bit? Well, apparent. Well, OK. So in this world, uh, a character that is a construct from your memory will come up to you and they're called the cannibals. If if you're paying attention earlier, uh, there's uh, beware the cannibals spray painted on the one of the earlier doors uh, room that lead to one of the earlier rooms. But anyway, so one of these constructs slash cannibals will, you know, grab a real person's head and kind of steal a memory. And that memory will form on the ground in like this, blue goo and this is all the the kind of set stuff and the design that i i like really dug about this um and they just kind of like just manifest out of this goo in a really uh unnerving way it's a pretty cool effect for uh, how cheap i'm sure the budget is and then uh these people it's like a living person or it looks like it's a living person uh and then the uh, cannibal slash construct goes over to it and like we'll just start ripping it open and eating it and they're basically pomegranate people on the inside <laughs> they look like broken open pomegranates 
but it's they still do. really unnerving. They do. And I, I just, this was the first sour note for me. Or, well, the second sour note. Was the, the pomegranates? Pomegranate. The pomegranate seeds <laughs> is just the worst. Like, I, I loved the way, the, the, the idea that the memory that they're stealing becomes a physical incarnation. It comes up out of this goo in the fetal position. And it's almost like a stillborn fetus in that, although, you know, the the memory the the incarnation is is as old as the memory so for example um when when margo the first memory margo has stolen in in episode 2 is the memory of her mother the mother that is, is um drawn up out of this ooze is an adult but she never she never wakes up she's always in in the fetal position and all wet and the dad comes down into the garage and just breaks her apart and starts eating her and she's full of pomegranate seeds i just found this so <laughs> distracting and i understand they didn't have much of a budget but could they have not gone with something like raw eggs or something creepy i know they wanted this kind of visceral look to it without being too visceral and they wanted it to be red i get it but i just couldn't get behind the pomegranate seeds <laughs> i just, dug it yeah i thought it was cool it. pulled me out completely pomegranates are rich in antioxidants <laughs> they're a superfood <laughs> And I like how when he first starts doing this, like the I feel the way the showrunner explained to him to act was he's still an infant in this pocket universe, and he doesn't really know what makes him tick. And well, in some cases, you might say, well, is he lying? Because he he flat out says some things like, well, I don't know, I I you know I think this is what I need to do. Um, but that's really interesting to me that, uh, this universe, this entity is creating this havoc, uh, using these cannibal creatures that aren't really affiliated with the house to begin with. Like they're just kind of put in the house and it's like, we'll go run amok. You're going to have to learn how to live. You know, and and uh, as you find out, well, uh, or who is it? Uh, JD. Well, his killed him. So now, how is he going to eat? You know, these things have. That's how they survive. So that's a thing to me as like uh, as a writer. Like that was what I was respecting. I'm like, oh, that, that's an interesting dynamic to have this this presence creating these creatures that just go and sometimes they fuck up and then sometimes they live like they live a you know kind of symbiotic relationship uh with their hosts yeah i mean i I really thought of them it's like your gut bacteria right these things are like the house's gut bacteria like it needs them to digest people but they're their own you know, like you don't control your gut bacteria. They're just living inside you, helping you ty- digest things. And they have their, they just want to survive. You know, they're they not. That's a really good analogy. Families. I really like that. They have their gut bacteria playgrounds. They do whatever <laughs> it is gut bacteria do. Yeah. I mean, but I really agree that and that adds an interesting dynamic. And it, it particularly, it, it adds a level of nuance and depth to the antagonist because essentially you end up with more than one antagonist. And it, it allows the antagonist to have some nuance. Like one of the complaints that I, I made in my last villain of the month column about monsters is it's hard sometimes to make them interesting because so often their motivations really boil down to kill it and eat it. 
And that can't sort of personally, it doesn't sustain my interest for that long because it isn't a complex enough motivation. There, there isn't any internal conflict in the antagonist. But by having these, these constructs that, that sprout up in the house, giving them independent agency brings in that internal conflict to them that makes them much more interesting as antagonists. Right. And this show does a really good job, I thought, of keeping you guessing about who is a villain and who's not a villain. And, uh, you know, there's just, as you're saying, there's multiple people who could be villains. And and I was kept guessing, at least. Uh, Grady, what do you think about that? Were you kept guessing as to the villains? Yeah. I mean, you know, they. Uh, I, I was interested in how this story was really not afraid to burn uh, narrative. You know, it's like, I, I feel like if it had been a longer season or an ongoing series, they would have hid the reveal that, you know, the dad is sort of eating these these memories. Um, but they, they throw that right out, I think, you know, in, see, in episode three, I think, by the I end of it. Two, two, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they really aren't, a, you know, they know they've got enough twists to get through to six episodes. And so they're really not scared to burn their narrative. And I thought that was pretty admirable. Um, because it's not long before our main characters realize, you know, even Margot that, you know, something's rotten in whatever this horrible suburb there is. <laughs> and, and they all try to go back to the house to get through the real room six, you know, to get past it and to, to go on back to the real world. And that's the point where they're, they go to this corn maze. The dad's following Margot, you know, sort of almost pathetically as he's falling apart. JD's doppelganger is falling apart because like, uh, you were just saying, he doesn't have anyone's memories to eat. Um, Aaron, the guy you taught is Aaron, right? Uh, the guy with D- the- Dylan. Dylan. Uh, he's like broken into his home and he thinks he's found his actual real wife who's been lost in this inside the house. And she's really happy there. And he basically murders her husband, who's himself in front of her, and abducts her at, you know, knife point all tied up. And she's completely traumatized. And, you know, it would have been kinder to leave her, perhaps. And um, and they wind up at this corn maze where we then learn, on top of all this other stuff, that Seth actually lives there pretty happily. And he's been luring women in to feed to the house to sort of, I guess, to pay rent. <laughs> okay, wait, actually, let's let's get to Seth in a little bit, because I want to know. Okay, so the um, the husband of Lacey is not actually a clone of Dylan, although the actors look sufficiently similar that I could definitely understand people making Yeah, I thought mistake. he was. Yeah, he's on screen so briefly, too. Yeah, so I think they really should have cast a, an actor who looked more different than Dylan. But um, but yeah, he is he is different. Um, then the other thing you mentioned this neighborhood. I just it was funny because I watched a Q and A with the actors, and they mentioned that this was filmed in Winnipeg, which they said is <laughs> kind of seems like a haunted place anyway, and is kind of creepy. <laughs> and I know uh, Aaron, you're our SR um, sort of resident uh, Canadian correspondent here. Mm-hmm. Um, do do you endorse that this idea that there's something just kind of off about Winnipeg? I've never been there. Um, I have also never been there. I have friends who are from there and they love it. Um, all I can say is I find that there's something, so I am a sucker for, for, for horrors set in the suburbs because I think the suburbs are creepy as fuck (laughs) anyway. I really don't like the suburbs and I particularly don't like that sort of, um, 
very Stepford, super organized suburbs. And just for all the people out there who live suburban lives and enjoy them, I'm so happy for you that that's your jam. It seems like a great <laughs> place to raise kids. Um, but but I, I find the conformity of the suburbs like inherently creepy. And they did such a good job of that with all these people sort of... Um, and, and it's never entirely clear whether the other people you see in the neighborhood, some of them are constructs, some of them are human, but you don't really know who's who. And they're just, they're going through the motions like a play. It's all very Groundhog Day. You know, they're, they're putting the garbage uh, in the, in the bins at the end of the driveway and they're, and they're going by on bicycles and their kids playing in the sprinklers and whatever. I want to, I want to mention, I didn't notice this. I watched this twice. I didn't notice this until the second time, but there's a part where one, a woman comes out onto her front lawn and kneels and says, time for dinner, kids. And they come over and like put their hands on her forehead to suck her memories out. Yeah. I saw yeah. that. Yeah. 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 Um, but if, if it's not too much backtracking, um, I, I think one of the, the, the failures of the show, failures of imagination. Um, and for the most part, the, I think the imagination was among the strongest elements of the show, if not the strongest element of the show, was what Jules sees in the house and what continues to pursue Jules. So all of the, of the four characters are four main heroes who start in episode one going in the house. We follow Margot through the house so we know what, we, what she saw. We see a little bit of what Jules saw in the house. JD tells us what he saw in the house, and we don't know anything about what Seth saw in the house. And even though JD doesn't get a lot of screen time as JD, because as we mentioned, he's off in episode two, what he sees in the house is is interesting. It's 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 a good sort of element of horror that that, that this guy's own insecurities produce a monster that kills him. It's, it's wonderfully philosophical. It's interesting. What Margot sees in the house, obviously the main narrative driver, very interesting. Jules sees, what the hell is that? <laughs> yeah, I was she never quite sure what Jules' thing was. And for the rest of the show, we have, to, we have to be interested in Jules being hypnotically drawn to, what is that? And I actually have a theory. We never know what it is. And, and at some point she says, what are you, some kind of you know, memory tumor or something? She doesn't even know what it is. And to me, that kind of strips it of meaning because for everybody else, it's so raw and personal. And for her, it's this mysterious white orb. And I ju it just felt like they yeah, had I no mean, ideas. I, I thought by the end, it was fairly clear to me that it's the physical manifestation of the barriers that she put up between herself and Jules uh, and, Mar and Margot in the aftermath of Margot's father's death. But I agree with you that it didn't do much for me. Um, it didn't do much for me, but I have a theory about it, which is that I think that because, you know, it's interesting, right? Jules is the black best friend. I mean, in every sitcom ever made, the white lead often has the black best friend or sometimes the fat best friend. Um, and they're always the sidekick. They're always only there to activate the story of the main character, right? So Jules as a black woman really serves no purpose in this, supposedly, except to underline, emphasize, and activate Margot, this privileged white girl's issues. And so my feeling is that the show, I don't think, has enough time to go where it might have wanted to go. But I think they nibble around the edges of how problematic that is. 
And we get occasional scenes with Jules and her family um, and her mother, who she seems to have this really fraught relationship with, especially the fact that her mother is smoking pot over a back injury. Um, and Jules, and so my theory is with the orb, and, and this is based on nothing more than Jules fan fiction, but <laughs> I think Jules was an unwanted child. I think her mom got pregnant by accident and had Jules. And I think Jules has gotten pregnant at college and had an abortion because that, that orb is very uh, like a womb. It's like something's trying to get out and ruin her life and destroy it. She's got this fraught relationship with her mom uh, that circulates around her mom smoking pot, which is something that her mom might've kept doing if she was pregnant with a kid she didn't want. Um, and it seems way too square for Jules, who seems like a pretty party hardy kind of kid. Um, so that was my read on that, but that is just putting together clues and gaps and probably isn't anything the showrunners anticipated. That's the exact read I had on it as well. Oh, good. Uh, I'm not crazy. Yeah. I, (laughs) because it looks like a womb and it's warm. It looks like it's warm in there. And what's in there wants to get out and ruin everything. But, I mean, isn't it explicit that Margot is what's inside the womb thing? Because she says, like, she sort, she sort of, there's a part where she hears Margot's voice coming from inside it, and she kind of, like... Eventually. But I think there are multiple different people it, it, at different points. Yeah, there seems to be a voices. man in there once. This is why I find the womb thing problematic. I, I, I just, what, I mean, whatever it is, I think it just fell flat, and... I mean, they could have done so many more interesting things with that. Like, you know, she does have this problematic relationship with her mother and maybe with her sister, which is shown to us, but is ultimately pointless because it never goes anywhere other than to show that she also has memories to eat. And wouldn't it have been more interesting if it was like, um, you know, something like it, the the manifestation is is if she's got a bad relationship with, with her mom or with her sister, the manifestation is that she she hurts one of them and then when it turns out that everybody else in the family doesn't even register the fact that she hurts them that she hurts them a little bit more and hey she can even kill one of them and no one seems to care and so she becomes her own kind of horror like i just there's a million different more interesting things you could have done with that than whatever this egg thing is which i mean i mean it didn't it didn't do the womb thing for me but but uh it had a more alien egg kind of quality for me but anyway well also i just want to throw out there that john's read on because i do think there's definitely a man in the womb at one point there is margo in the womb but i do think john's read on it is if it's only margo in the womb then holy cow Jules's monster is her best friend, who, let's admit it, is a pain in the ass. I mean, this is a, a, a girl who's done, and granted, her dad died. That's very sad. No one's ever had that happen to them in the history of the world before. But she's just gone into this, like, withdrawn tailspin that, you know, her friend, okay, she ran away to college? Is that really running away? Um, and has come back and, like, basically refuses to bail on her again. Margot is who's dragging Jules down. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. There's, I guess, yeah, I, I, like I said, I, I wasn't really that into that. And I, yeah, like no, well, was, nobody really was. I mean, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think we all kind of agreed. Maybe that could have used some tweaking. But um, let's talk about Seth. Um, Grady, you brought this up. And how about, um, Zach, do you want to expand on what Grady is saying about what Seth's big reveal turns out to be? Um, 
Yeah, and I that's another bit where I actually quite like where the writers went with it. Um, so you're going to think, uh, well, the this house is evil. These cannibals, they're obviously evil. Um, but the actual, um, I guess, like kind of the the mega boss or the final boss <laughs> is uh is Seth because he's been well I don't are are we yeah going we're all the full spoilers full spoilers here okay so we're going through all the rest of the episodes then so Seth you know he he helps them escape uh but really the only reason he's helping them escape is I he gets uh in between a rock and a hard place and he kind of has to his whole goal is to keep um, women, or at least all from what I saw, they were all women, uh, in the house. And because he's had all of his memories wiped, and he thinks that this place is like a great place, and it's like it gives and gives and gives, and he's this type of person, maybe he has some PTSD where that, you know, you wouldn't want to remember certain things. So he thinks that this is just a great gift. And um but then he, he also gets like oddly defensive about the house when they're saying, hey, you know, we're going to we're going to burn this shit down. Or uh Margot says that at some point. And he's like, whoa, no, I think that's a bad idea, you know. So it's not just getting rid of his old memories like he does want to start like a new life here in this pocket universe where he can have all of these people that he curates that he brings you know, he'll, he'll leave and then he'll bring people back. And uh, we don't really get to see a lot of those other people, but you know, we see them in the background and, and a lot of them are all people that Seth has uh, hand selected to bring into the house and to feed the house and, I guess continue his existence. Uh, I, I guess banging the main character and maybe other characters like her. Right. Yeah. So I mean, I actually thought this was the most interesting part of the show to me was this reveal about what's the re- the deal actually is with Seth. So yeah, I, I think everything you said there is is good. Yeah, he was raised in foster homes and has never felt like he belongs anywhere. And yeah, maybe has some bad childhood experiences he wants to forget. And so he finds his way into this house where you can sort of curate your memories. You know, you can, if you sort of play your cards right, you can choose which memories get sucked out and which you keep. And he kind of has this um, this line of line of bullshit, which I think his line of bullshit should have been a lot better at the end. He kind of he gives kind of like a James Bond villain speech, which I yeah. really kind of fell flat for me. But it, 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 it was... It could have been good. I mean, like, the, I think what he should have said was more like, I find people in the outside world who are like me, just really, really unhappy people, and I bring them into the house, and I remove their unhappy memories from them, and they're happier this way. And, um, you know, he, he, he presents it in, in sort of a more of a, you know, a positive light, when, when really what he's doing is, as Zach was saying, is he's kind of like going from girl to girl, and when they get to, uh, you know... Uh, vapid or vacuous because of what the house has done to them. He 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 seeks out another one and, and brings her in to be his next girlfriend. Um, well, and the interesting thing about that is 
if the dynamic is the same for uh, between Margot and Seth that it was between Seth and all these other girls, that these women come into the house and really feel like he's their savior. He's the one who under who who can help them. He's he's their knight in shining armor to get them out of there, and he's just keeping them there. It's really a nice uh, twist on it. It's very perverted. Mm. But but the there were some things I think that some loose ends or some frayed edges that they, that they had with this character that didn't make a lot of sense to me. Like there are choices that he makes that don't appear terribly consistent with his, with that big reveal and with his overall goals. Um, And and the one that really stands out in my mind is I can see how he's, he's um, as Zach said, between a rock and a hard place in terms of leading them out and his, you know, his brain is turning and he's thinking, okay, how can I get Margot back in? He doesn't really care about any of the others, but how can I get Margot to come back in? Um, but so from that perspective, Margot finally in episode four, whatever it is, they managed to successfully escape the house for real this time. But the problem now is that the dad has followed them out into the real world and is causing havoc in the real world because he needs to feed off Margot. Um, and the dad, who is, in my opinion, the most interesting of the whole thing, because just as JD's insecurities were copied over to uh, to his doppelganger and the insecurities, uh, yeah, and, and the allergies, rather, were copied over to the dad, the dad's, Margot's memories of how much her dad loved her are copied over into the doppelganger of the dad. So the doppelganger of the dad, even though he is driven by this need to feed off Margot, he legitimately loves her and doesn't want to hurt her. So he has this conflict. Um, so he's, he's follows her out into the real world almost against his own will. Um, and, and so Seth's dilemma at this point is how do I get Margot back in the house? So the part where he helps or tries to help Margot and to all appearances, I legitimately tries to help her kill the dad makes no sense to me because the dad is the only reason she would go back to the house. So, Although just, he may know that the dad can't be killed. I don't know how he would know that. Like everything well, else. Well, he's been the around show, these things. He has, right? he has, but the, the dad did have this allergic reaction and, and how would he know the precise dose that would or wouldn't kill the dad? Like it just, I, I'm not saying you couldn't talk your way out of it, but I just, there were a couple of sloppy moments with the Seth character. I thought no, where, no, where I- his character didn't make sense. I, I agree with that because I feel like my impression when Seth turns out to be who he is was that there was no foreshadowing of that at all. And going back and watching it, I was like, oh, there's a little bit of foreshadowing here. There's a little bit of foreshadowing there that I really liked. But there's still there's a lot of things that just, to, to my mind, don't make any sense um, that yeah. he does. There's a fine line between throwing the viewer off the scent and having the character behave in a way that doesn't make sense for their central motivations. Right. And, and so the thing, the two things that really bug me are that he never does anything to encourage them to go into the house, um, which, I mean, yeah, you could explain all this kind of stuff away, but um, it just seems very weird. You know, I, I think that um, there should have been some moment where they wouldn't have gone into the house if it weren't for something that Seth said or did, because otherwise, what's the point of him going out to get people if they would have just come into the house? The same people would have just come into the house anyway. Exactly. Um, but then the other thing, the thing that that is my least favorite moment in the entire show, uh, and it could be really good. I mean, it's a good setup, but he sort of wanders into the cul-de-sac where all we, we find out later all of his um, girlfriend, his sort of ex-girlfriends are have been quartered. 
and someone in the in the window waves at him a, a girl a sort of girl in her uh, underwear waves at him which is good but then he kind of like gets grabbed from behind by um what turns out to be a, a a family that the house has created for him and that he's kind of locked up in the center of this cul-de-sac cul in a cage and just the way he gets grabbed suggests that he has no idea that this cage is there and <laughs> that just seems completely false to me because we find out later that he not only did he lock them up there in the first place, but he's come to this place dozens, probably hundreds of times. So the yeah, idea he that he would be, it. yeah, yeah, the idea that he would be surprised by being grabbed out of this cage just doesn't make sense to me on any level whatsoever. Yeah, and 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 yeah, it's just intended to fool you um, about like, Seth's character. I feel like there were a lot of little pieces of that, not just with Seth's character, but with. Is it Dylan, the guy who, uh, the, yeah, the military dude? The, yeah. He was the yeah, most so, unfulfilled of all the character arcs by far. Yeah, and it's so terrible. His That fourth episode really irritated me because it's a bunch of people doing dumb things and separating and, and going off on their own. Um, and for really, for, for very not good motivations. And so Dylan, uh, ties his wife up to date, uh, JD, who, I mean, pretty much at this point, he's about to find out, or he's pretty well on his way of knowing that that's due, there's something not right with JD. Um, and he's like, yeah, if there's anything wrong with her, uh, I'll kill you. And then he walks off and then, you know, mass. That's kind of when that rock in a hard place and Seth had to say, all right, well, let's go. Um, but but that whole sequence was just kind of nuts. Yeah, I, I think the writers needed to really think about, hey, why should I separate certain characters and why should I have certain characters together? And how do I make those dynamics interesting? Uh, because the way what came out uh, was just really chaotic. And it's just hard to believe that, you know, characters would just walk away from certain things or would be away for 20 feet and not be able to do something. Uh, all of that blocking just felt awkward and terrible to me. Yeah, and there's parts where Margot goes off by herself. There's parts where Jules runs off by herself for no reason. I, I agree with you that that was definitely a problem in episodes kind of three to four. And so. I think I – so I watched this whole thing in between watching vast chunks of um, Stranger Things, which is a masterwork of how do, how do I put two characters together and give them a good reason to be together – and make them likable, and then have them go off, even though it's not a good idea. It's like it's clear. There's clear motivation, and it's not messy uh, where characters are and when they are, and what information is being delivered to them at any time. And then from going to that, from that level of craft of of mapping out uh, these writers must have spent so much time mapping out where characters were to uh the writers of um zero channel uh where they were just like ah fuck it you know there's just a bunch of chaos this is the climax here it is it's like no build up the climax like ha have 
reasons why these characters die other than your character was an idiot and tied them together. I don't know. Yeah. That's how- <laughs> it, there were, that whole episode had a little too much walking dead going on in it. And, and I, I'm still watching the walking dead and I can't for the life of me figure out why, cause it's been so bad for so long. Anyway, that's another conversation, but it just <laughs> that, that a lot of the things that irritate me about that show are precisely what you're saying. Like, that this is a stupid decision that there's no way to justify. Um, and then, you know, you just, the, the whole sort of random woman coming, running out of the corn to kill the wife was just like, uh, it felt lazy. I, yeah, it exactly. didn't belong. It kind of stuck out as like, and now we have a cameo from the walking dead. <laughs> I just had uh, to have a big drink because stranger things got mentioned, but I wanted to say one thing though, that now that we're talking about who Seth is, so the thing I found really horrifying about this show, and, and I know, Aaron, you don't agree with this, but there is an element to this where everyone who's trapped in this world is someone who on some level wants to be there, which I find really just devastatingly awful. Um, you know, they either want to be there because they've been tricked and, you know, they think they're in love with this guy and they don't want to leave him and then it's too late. Or they want to be there because they gave up and they stopped fighting. Or they want to be there because they like the fantasy of what they're able to get there um, more than they like what reality is, which is Margot's issue. And that, to me, so if there was no way to stay in this world and stay mostly human, then Seth couldn't exist. But so what we get is this idea that so many of these people have just quit. They've given up. They've given in. They've let themselves live here, which I find really just kind of horrific. I mean, it, I, I think I, I was questioning that specific character. I think there's a subtle distinction to be made between wanting to be there and choosing to be there. Um. So, you know, I wouldn't say, for example, that Margot wants to be there. She chooses to be there. And one of the things that I think is really interesting about that is, so one thing we didn't mention is that at some point, um, so yes, I guess it's episode five. I don't know. Anyway, when, when Margot chooses, so, so the dad follows her out into the real world and he's dying and he basically begs her to, to go back to the house and, um, and he's gonna, and then he gets violent, um, and he, and he's gonna hurt real people because he's too desperate. He needs to eat. So ultimately, Margot agrees to, to go back to the house. So she goes back mm-hmm. to the house with Seth, um, and, and the dad in the house disappears for a year. And then, so episode six takes, takes place a year later because the, that, the house disappears and then reappears annually and it re- reappears in Quebec and, um, this whole time Jules um, has been searching for the house. And I thought that there was a really nice symmetry to the the character motivations and how it drives them to, to make the decisions that put them in peril, but also drives them to make the decisions that ultimately deliver them. And so Jules, whose whole sort of um, impetus through, through the story has been, trying to alleviate her guilt for having abandoned Margot in her time of need, spends the entire show trying to be there for Margot. And this becomes very real in the last episode where she spent the last year obsessing about how to get back into the house. She finally gets back into the house and it's a rescue mission. 
Um, and and Margot, the, the reason she's in the house is basically that fundamentally she felt, feels like her dad died because of her the first time around, and she doesn't want to have that happen again. Um, and so she's prepared to sacrifice herself in order to, to correct this perceived mistake. And so that was all really really well done and i liked if we're going to get into sort of the 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 end game is this a good time dave yeah yeah um i I really liked the fact that the dad becomes increasingly conflicted as he sees the effect that this is having on margo and she's becoming a shell and you can see that that he's starting to regret his choice um and we we didn't mention but we learned somewhere along the way that in fact the dad's um the dad's death the overdose wasn't accidental um right. margo finds out that the dad actually committed suicide in order because they were in major financial trouble and he felt like he needed to take care of the family and so he committed suicide but made it look like an accident so that they would still get the life insurance money so so margo learns that you know regardless of what time she would have come home the dad still would have been dead and that he killed himself to protect his family. The decision they make at the very end to, to have uh, Margot escape is the dad comes to the conclusion that he needs to die. And at this point they have Margot in this very painful moment with, with the help of Jules very symbolically putting her hand on the dagger, Margot and Jules stab the dad. I would have liked it so much better if the dad took his own life once again. It would have made so much more sense to me, like, I'm not sure why he didn't. He concludes that he needed to die. He's already taken his own life once before. Why does he have to put Margot through this thing? And so that that was where, for me, they almost had this perfect loop of beautiful symmetry in the narrative that they just kind of screwed up at the very end for me. I would have found it a more satisfying ending. Hmm. Actually, what you're saying there about the financial difficulties makes me think that uh, this is, I feel like, a little bit of a missed opportunity, but I, I thought it was really kind of interesting the way that Seth prefers it inside the, the house world. The the scene that stands out in my mind is they're up on the water tower, and you can see the kind of undulating darkness at the um, edges of the, at the margins of the world, and it's really kind of weirdly beautiful, and he says, you know, this, you know, you got to stop and smell the roses, essentially. Um, but one facet of the house world is that you open up the refrigerator and there's always eggs in there. You know, there's never any um, physical deprivation or, you know, economic stress within house world. And I thought that maybe they could have played that up more, that this is another thing that draws people to the, um, you know, into the house world that, you know, you have in the real world, you have student loan debt and <laughs> all this kind of stuff. Whereas in house world, that stuff, it all just, all just disappears, you know? Well, that's something I thought was so great about this show is, is I can forgive any number of issues with execution if I think a show's going somewhere really interesting sort of at its heart. And this show is so radically anti, um, what's good now. It's so against home. This is a show that says, if you stay home, you've been suckered, you've been lied to, you will die. Yes, the fridge is always full of eggs. Yes, nothing ever changes. Yes, it's comfortable. But your best and only option is to burn it all down and run. 
And the people <laughs> who are going to get you out of there are your friends who are going to keep coming back until they have to drag you out by your hair. And the people who want you to stay are creeps who want to eat you alive, be it your parents, be it a boyfriend. Um, and I love the fact that, um, you know, I know, I know there were issues with the acting early on and stuff, but I feel like there is something with sort of like I see with kids in their early twenties where when they're faced with something really unpleasant, and I mean, I think this is with kids of any generation in their early twenties. It was certainly true for me. Your instinct is either to run away like jewels, you know, and just forget it and put it out of your mind and not cope with something unpleasant, or you act like Margot and you sort of shut down and acquiesce and go along with whatever people are telling you to do, whatever people who sort of have your best interest in mind are telling you to do. And I love the fact that this show is about those answers aren't good enough. You have to fight and run and destroy it because that is your only hope of surviving. Staying home, staying where it's safe, staying where everyone loves you and your mom's your best friend and your dad's so great and he makes you breakfast is just bullshit and a dead end and you will wind up a husk. Whoa. <laughs> and it's so much more radically, politically, and psychologically interesting than anything Stranger Things has ever said in its entire two seasons that I will give this show points to the nth degree because I know that's not a popular opinion and everyone loves Stranger Things and it's just the greatest thing since sliced bread. Are you sure you're not projecting I think this to Smith? Stranger Things, <laughs> Stranger Things is so conservative, it's show. right out of the 50s. I don't want to get started on it, but it is like a lassie movie where Eleven is a dog. Oh man, well, we, we really need to we really need to hash this out over a beer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but but sticking with channels here for a second, I guess I want to ask Zach. I mean, you're you're much closer to the age of these characters, certainly, than I am. I mean, what do you think about kind of what we're saying about young people and economic stress and leaving home and stuff like that. Uh, yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, kids love to look at their phone and mumble all the time, <laughs> just like these actors and actresses and be vapid. Yeah. I mean, that's accurate, but it's just not compelling to me at all as a narrative. It's boring. Uh, I like to see active characters um, and I, I get the best friend at the end, you know, she does break out of that, but that arc, it's interesting, but the first half of it is, or the first 90% of it is very brutal for, for me to sit down and watch. It's very boring. Um, you know, I could just go anywhere uh, where I could go to any bar and sit down and just see people scrolling through their tinder you know um or just looking vapidly at the screen like so often there is so many scenes of characters walking and their mouths open and they're just there I don't is know. a lot of mouth breathing in the show i will give there you is that. a lot of mouth the, acting there, there's a phys there's a the physical um the physical acting of particularly the the, the lead character margot i think is both perfect and awful in precisely the way that you're saying she's very sort of droopy posture eyes at half mast mouth hanging open mumbling and yes it, it's it's totally accurate, but it's also, it is a little bit, I, I don't like the, the kind of the sullen teenager act. I never have, even though, of course, it's completely accurate. 
Yeah, hmm. I don't hang out with those people. Like, I know, I know a ton of them from, you know, school, high school, college. I still see them, you know, at parties on occasion, but those are not like people that I want to hang out with. And therefore, they're not people that I want to watch a story about or read, you know, uh, a book about. Um, and I get that they are, you know, they are moving and they are dynamic. And I really like that, uh, the, the best friends ultimate, um, action, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost like, uh, Margo was cast because of episode six where she's just a zombie and it's like, well, honestly, She's kind of a zombie throughout the whole series, at least acting wise. <laughs> yeah, well, there's something to that, but um, but to to be fair, I didn't feel like there were a lot of moments where they were staring at their phone. <laughs> there were a few. It, it was mainly in that first episode because the first episode was a lot of like character development, that type of thing, and then by the time they get into the pocket universe, it's really just go, go, go. And yeah. and their phones, are, I'm sure, aren't working anyways. But mm-hmm. one of the things to, that they, I think, did really well with, with the characters that way is I think that they hearkened back to, or they, I guess that first, what, what I'm trying to say is that first episode reminded me the most of a conventional horror movie in terms of the setup. And the, the, the overall sort of, the, the characters, um, gesture towards some of those most familiar horror movie cliches, especially like slasher fit flick uh, cliches of you've got the nerdy guy who knows all the lore. You've got um, sort of the main character. You've got the jockey kind of guy and you've got the best friend. Um, and, but it, but it kind of put those on their heads in terms of like, usually in your classic sort of eighties slasher uh, movie, you've got the, the, whoever, first of all, whoever has sex first dies. That goes double for the girl. Um, the nerdy guy usually lasts, if not to the very end, almost to the very end, the guy who knows all the lore. Um, and, and this move, this, the show didn't cleave to any of those. The nerdy guy is the first to get offed. Um, the, there are no, you know, sort of, there, there's still a creepy aspect to the romantic relationship that develops between Seth and Margot, but it's not that immediate sort of punishing characters for, for drinking or for having sex or for doing any of those sorts of things. So I like that it was familiar enough to sort of, you're kind of nodding your head to the beat, but then it's like, it catches you out because it doesn't follow the rules. I like that. Yeah. I just want to say overall, as I said, I, I loved this show. I thought the first two episodes were fantastic. I agree with Seth that like episodes three, four, and five were some were like a little boring sometimes, a little nonsensical sometimes. But I really liked episode six, and I thought it really paid off everything really well. I mean, even just the thing about you know beware the cannibals. I feel like so many things I watch, you know, like Lost or whatever, it would say like beware the cannibals, and then they would like forget that ever happens, and it would never like, be explained or anything. And like all this, like I, at the end, I really felt like most of the. Um, you know, every most of the major threads had all been tied up, and the ones that were left over just left me a lot to think about and left me wondering, you know, like imagining future stories in my head. So, um, you know what yeah. I'm wondering? What the hell are the orchids about? Does someone want to want to take a stab at that? Because I thought maybe if I looked up what orchids meant in flower language, that would be illuminating, but it wasn't. 
I think they're just well no, there's the part where there's the the um what was it like some sort of like the mantis. Um, para- um yeah, some sort of parasite or whatever you would call it, predator yeah. inside the flowers. But is that it? Cuz I mean there's well, lo- there's lots of predators that use mimicry. I just felt like um, the orchids were just a visual cue to the audience of when we were in the house world and when we weren't, because it gets, you know, I could see people getting a little confused toward the end when it's, they're going back and forth. Hmm. I got a, I got a big question. So they're outside in episode five and uh Zodiac killer eats his daughter's memories and they form just like how they form in the house. What a That's dead. why I'm convinced they're not really outside in that episode. Yeah, I kind of was convinced of that too. Because it's... How does that work? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm with you. <laughs> I didn't really notice that, I have to say. What I couldn't figure out is... I th- the, the, the sort of plot hole for me that, that was the most glaringly obvious, but I just kind of overlooked it, um, was memories aren't static or finite so even as memories are being eaten within the house new memories are being made so if you were in a situation that margo and the dad find themselves in where he's doing his best to eat only insignificant memories couldn't she just walk down the street shake someone's hand and say hi i'm margo nice to meet you this has been fun walk back to the house and have dad eat that yeah, but that probably only has like 10 calories, a shitty memory like that. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. You know, the thing about this show that really bums me out uh, on some level is that it's shows like this that convince me that sort of um, the, the I mean, I write books. That's what I do for a living. And it shows like this that convince me that I'm sort of useless and old and just need to go lie down in a corner and let the dust settle on me till I stop breathing. There's something about creepy pasta, and you know the fact that the people who do this show—I mean, it's a—it's a—it's a writers' room full of playwrights and web cartoonists and people from a lot of backgrounds. But like, one of the big motivators is like someone who comes out of web comics and podcasts and stuff. And the way that some of this stuff feels so new and so different—the way you know, even listening to Zach talk and complain about the acting—I mean. That's what critics were complaining about with Marlon Brando and on the waterfront. Oh, he just mumbles. And if I want to see some guy act real, I'll go sit at the bar and watch a bunch of mouth breathers. And now we look back and we're like, wow, that was radically new and different because it felt so much more authentic. Um, and, and so it's, there's something about the way this stuff comes out of creepy pasta. I don't know if you guys have seen the sort of infomercial initiative that Adult Swim did back in 2014. Where they got like, I mean, what I think is one of the best horror movies of the last 10 years, which is unedited footage of a bear by the Wham City folks. But I mean, the way that people are playing with the world, you know, infomercials and creepy pasta and stuff you're not sure is real or not. And, and the way they're able to sort of move between these things and bring in these mumblecore strains. And I mean, it's really breathtaking and it's, it's stuff that feels legit. New And I know this had concessions to TV series and all this, but it felt new. It felt different. It felt like a step forward. It felt, it felt like Black Mirror instead of Tales from the Crypt. Um, and, you know, and then you look at stuff like Jeff Vandermeer's Southern Reach trilogy, which would have been so much better if it hadn't been a book, if it had actually been creepypasta. Um, and, and, it was, and it was so at odds with its own format. 
I, I just sometimes see stuff like this and it just really makes me feel old and irrelevant and, and out of touch. Even though there's execution things and there's things people don't like and there's, there's things that seem lumpy and awkward. It's this reach towards a new kind of new tropes, you know, something besides vampires and zombies and whatever we're still like dry humping from 50 years ago. It, it, it really impresses me on a, on a lot of levels. All right. Well, Grady, I think that's a good note to end on because we are completely out of time. And so I think we're going to wrap things up there. So we've been speaking with Grady Hendricks, Aaron Lindsay, and Zach Chapman. So guys, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Thanks. <laughs> and that was our panel. So big thanks again to Grady Hendricks, Aaron Lindsay, and Zach Chapman for joining us on the show. Big thanks as well to everyone who's given us five stars on iTunes, including Jed MMC, plus plus exclamation point, and Helmet the Schmidt. Helmet the Schmidt writes, I have been listening to Geek's Guide to the Galaxy for almost two years, and it continues to be an extraordinary experience. The breadth of guests is amazing. Hugo Award winners, Nebula Award winners, two Nobel laureates. Deep insight in the trade, philosophy, and art that is modern sci-fi. This podcast is a must-listen, and I am so lucky to have found it. So big thanks again to Helmut the Schmidt for that great review. And remember that Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. And I want to give a special thank you to Eric Schnell, who just made a very generous contribution to the show via PayPal. So big thanks again to everyone who's contributed. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkirtley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.